my first real job was at a teaching at a middle school in San Antonio. And the year before I got there, the first lady came to visit that school. Um, and so I, you know, I just heard the stories about it because I wasn't there during the time, but there's like an advanced team that came to like prep stuff and ask lots of questions and check out the layout and security and all the stuff. And, you know, of course she shows up with secret service and like, you know, it's a big deal when, you know, the first lady, like there's a lot of prep and a lot of stuff that went on just to make that, I don't know, hour that she spent on campus run really smoothly. And, you know, of course, the, the superintendents there, all, you know, the, like the district is really, you know, like this is a big deal when, when the first lady shows up somewhere. Um, the same year in grad, in grad school, I, I visited a, a Montessori school one time. Like, no one's talking about that 30 years later. <laughs> like, it wasn't a big deal for me to show up at a school for a visit one time. Um, and we'll, we'll kind of get back to this idea of you know, significance and importance um, as, as we go. So today we're, we're going to wrap up our series that we're calling Fix Your Eyes on Jesus. We've been going through four foundational truths about God, that God is good, that God is great, God is gracious, and today God is glorious. So glory is like one of the most complicated and comprehensive things the Bible says about God. And um, you know, when we were talking about greatness, Kevin, you asked about like, what about holiness? Where does that fit in? And, and I think it's here. Because if you look at like a systematic theology textbook that like lists the attributes of God, you know, like he's love, you know, he's loving and just and omniscient and omnipotent and all that. Sometimes it doesn't even list glory because glory is like a summary of like everything else. Um, according to a theologian, Herman Babnick, <laughs> the glory of God is the infinite, indescribable perfection and beauty of all the other attributes. Right? So he's... Um, you know, he's like every one, he's the most of every one of his attributes. He's the, he's the best, the most glorious in his love and his grace and his greatness, um, his holiness. And, um, you know, that, that means in a sense, the glory of God is the beauty of everything the Bible says about him. And the word glory is used all over the Bible. So I'll show you a slide here where... Christopher Morgan wrote in this essay on the Gospel Coalition, um, and we're not going to go through all of it. I just want you to see the like all of these references. They're all over the place. That God's glory is revealed through creation, through the, it's linked to the Exodus. It's like the fire shining bright light to a cloud, the Sabbath. It's revealed to Moses. It fills the tabernacle. It fills the temple. Fill, the glory of the Lord fills the earth. Like all of these, re, you know, uh, references to God's glory, and then uh, God's glory is identified with Christ. It's linked to His incarnation, the birth narratives, miracles, transfiguration, uh, resurrection, ascension, reign. All of these things talk about the glory of Christ, and further. 
the, the glory is identified with the Holy Spirit, identified with the church, and it's manifested in the new creation. So, the Bible's primarily written in Greek and Hebrew. The word glory in Greek is doxa. You might know a church nearby with that name, or a painting company. Um, doxa means um, opinion outside of the Bible. Uh, in Greek, uh, doxa means like opinion, reputation, fame. Uh, but doxa in the New Testament is also used to translate the word from Hebrew, kavod. And doxa takes on all the special meaning of kavod, the Hebrew word, in the Old Testament. So let's look at that. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I'm relying on Tim Mackey from the Bible Project and, and others who are Hebrew scholars. So kavod, the most basic, simple meaning, is heavy. In English, we use the word heavy um, and similar words in non-literal ways all the time. Like yesterday, I, you know, um, there's a funeral for a friend of mine. Like my heart was heavy, right? Like we, we use the term that way. Um, you know, when you might say when my coworker found out she had stage four pancreatic cancer in her early 40s, man, that was heavy. Um, you might have heard somebody say, like, he didn't grasp the gravity of the situation, right? That's a similar idea. Um, I thought, like, I really hadn't had this thought before this week, I think, but if we ask a question, does it matter? Matter, like, in a scientific sense, right, is weightiness, does it have substance? Um, you know, by all these uses, we mean something's important, significant. It takes up space. Um, in the Bible, someone can be kavod. In in in, uh, uh, in Judges, they're like this is the story that like really, as a kid, got me interested in uh, in reading the Bible. The the judge Ehud, the left-handed judge takes a, a dagger and stabs it into the belly of this big fat king. And so he's like so fat, like his belly envelops the dagger. Like as a little, a little boy, that was just the coolest thing. I was like, this is in the Bible? And that guy was described as kabod kabod. He's like fat, fat, heavy, heavy. You know, like he's a big guy. Um, but Beyond that, like simple use, the word kavod is, is a technical term. It's used to describe this multifaceted glory of God. Um, Christopher Morgan that wrote the, the slides that we just saw defined seven senses of the word glory that appear in the Bible. And some only appear a couple of times, so we won't focus on all of those. We'll just see the main ones. Um, so someone can have a certain degree of kavod about them. David said at one point, my kavod is in the dirt. Like it's his reputation, his honor. He's saying no one thinks I matter at that moment. His reputation was shot. Um, and that sense of like significance and importance, that's, where, that's how the word's used a lot in the Old Testament. 
Um, in Psalm 8, human beings are crowned with kavod, crowned with glory. This overlaps the image of God. When, um, when humans reflect God well, it's their kavod. That's their glory. Um, but in the Bible, it's God most often who has kavod. Right? The words used to describe the physical manifestation of his significance when he shows up somewhere. Um, Justin Westcott mentioned this morning the, the phrase visible splendor. Right? Like he shows like it's it's a manifestation, it's visible, like something about his grandeur is made visible. That's glory. Um, so Kavod is a summary of all of his attributes. It's the display of his attributes. Sometimes it's used in the sense of it's his very presence, his glory. Um, you know, Mount Sinai, fire and cloud, lightning and smoke and trumpets. Like, that's called God's glory. Um, and so it all starts with just heavy, but then that's a metaphor for reputation and significance. And, and so let's look at a few examples. First, the word kavod, glory, is used of God first in Exodus. That's the Lord showing up on, on Mount Sinai. It's one of the primary pictures of the glory of God in the Old Testament. Um, and it's spread across many chapters. So I'll, I'll summarize this. So imagine this for a, a moment. You, you're part of the nation of Israel, rescued from slavery miraculously. You show up at the base of a mountain, and the appearance of the glory of God descends like a devouring fire onto the mountain and engulfs the top of the mountain. That's how it's described in Exodus. There's a thick cloud of smoke covering the whole mountain. Can you smell it? The ground is shaking. You're warned not to set foot on the mountain lest you get instantly killed. There's thunder and lightning coming from inside this thick black cloud of smoke. And out of nowhere, like loud trumpet sounds blasting. Everyone around you is trembling. Exodus 24 says, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. Now the appearance of the Lord, of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. This is how the Bible describes a manifest glory of God. And it's an awe-inspiring and frightening display of God's power and weightiness, His glory. It's this kavod, this presence, that also comes to dwell in the tabernacle. And later the temple. So let, let's, that's our next example, the, the temple. In Isaiah 6, um, if, if you're familiar, it says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And above him were seraphim, with each with six wings, and they're calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, I think it's interesting that it says they're calling to each other. Right? They're not declaring this to God. They're saying, holy, holy, holy smokes to each other. Right? That God is glor like 
the whole world is full of his glory. Um, so we're in a giant room right now with very high ceilings. Imagine someone so large that the fringe of his robe filled the building. Right? I think if you look at the top, you know, like the floor to the top of the ceiling there would be like the diameter of his big toe. Right? Like, just imagine that for a minute. Like, that's crazy that we could, you know, like that God would be that big. And this is just a, you know, a vision of Isaiah. It's a representation of, of who God is. Isaiah also says later, like, he holds the stars in the span of his hand. That's much bigger than this would be, right? To hold the universe in his hand. Um, <clears throat> Like, so I want to ask the question, like, use your imagination. What would it be like to encounter God in that form? It's like big toe is as big as this building. Scary. Scary. You want to make sure you're invited. <laughs> <laughs> you want to make sure you're invited. Yeah. Feel it. Uncomprehensible. Like, yeah. oh, I've never seen anything like that. Right. Jaw dropping. Can you imagine, like, hugging the big toe? <laughs> It'd be clean. It's got uh, so, one more example from the New Testament. So, now imagine you're one of Jesus' disciples. You're with him as the scene unfolds. So, close your eyes if that helps. At the end of Matthew 16, Jesus says some of them will see the Son of Man in kingdom glory. And then in chapter 17, six days later, three of them saw that glory. Jesus took Peter and the brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain. His appearance changed from the inside out right before their eyes. Sunlight poured from his face. His clothes were filled with light. They realized that Moses and Elijah were also there in deep conversation with him. And what a glorious appearance they made. Peter broke in. Master, this is a great moment. Uh, what do you think if I built three memorials here on the mountain? One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He blurted this out without thinking. While he was going on like this, babbling, a light, radiant cloud enveloped them. As they found themselves buried in the cloud, they became deeply aware of God. And sounding from, the deep, in the, from deep in the cloud, a voice, this is my son, marked by my love, focus of my delight. Listen to him. When the disciples heard it, they fell flat on their faces, scared to death. But Jesus came over and touched them. Don't be afraid. When they opened their eyes and looked around, all they saw was Jesus. Only Jesus. From Sinai to the temple to the transfiguration, I hope you're seeing a magnificent picture of of God's glory, his kavod. So, 
What's it mean for us that God is glorious? Um, one implication we can draw, the main one we focus on in the four G's is this. God is glorious, so we don't need to fear others. So if, if God is a truly weighty one, the one that matters, um, the one that is infinitely more important than anyone else, then we don't need to worry about what anyone else thinks of us. His opinion should be the only one that matters. Uh, the next slide shows a balance scale, like the old school kind, like the, the scale of justice. Um, so focus on, on that image as I read a couple verses from Isaiah 40. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. So imagine the nations of the world throughout all of time, every society, they created the wonders of the world, the Egyptian pyramids, the Taj Mahal, the Great Wall of China, the Eiffel Tower. Imagine all the art and literature and medicine and technology from all of these societies. Imagine the military might of nuclear weapons and the audacity of putting someone on the moon. All of that which seems so significant to us is like dust on one side of the scale. If the weight of God, his kavod, is on one side of the scale, it'd be pegged to the bottom. Right? If, you, if you stacked everything great and terrible from all the nations of the world on the other side, it'd be like dust on the scale. Nothing. Nothing compared to the glory of God. Nothing compared to his significant, the significance of his love, his greatness, his grace, his goodness. In, in Psalm 8, David's like looking at the night sky in wonder and awe, and he asks a question, what is man that you're mindful of? And in light of, the, of God and the cosmos, we shouldn't matter. But David goes on to say, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. We shouldn't matter to God, but he crowned us with his cover, his glory. He thinks highly of you. He made you in his image. He crowned you with glory and honor. He's the truly weighty one the truly significant one. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we get the record of his perfect life. That's how the Father sees you now, justified, just as if you'd never sinned. So if the one with all that kavod, all that glory, and significance has a great opinion of you, why worry about what someone else thinks? If you put what God thinks of you on one side of the scale, you have the glorious record of Jesus's right living. 
and you put what your neighbor or your boss or your friend or your spouse thinks of you on the other side, it's not even dust on the scale. But it doesn't always feel like that for us, right? Um, sometimes we believe the lie that people are more glorious than God. And we feel we need them for significance and self-esteem. The result is we're controlled by them, often without realizing it. And we've, in effect, made gods of them in our lives. The, the Bible calls that idea the fear of man. In Proverbs, it says the fear of man lays a snare or a trap. And when the Bible says fear of man, it's not primarily that we're scared of people. Although it can include that, but it's much broader. Fear extends to being awestruck by someone, putting your trust in them, being controlled by them, looking to them for your worth, their significance, worship. We fear whomever or whatever we deem most glorious, whatever we, we think is most weighty in our lives. So I'm going to run through a list, see if any of these symptoms of the fear of man ring true for you. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Are you overcommitted because you can't say no, even though you know you should? Do you ever worry one day you'll be exposed as an imposter? Are you always second-guessing your decisions because of what other people might think? Are you jealous of what other people have of other people and what they have? Have you ever told little white lies to make yourself look better? Are you very easily embarrassed? Do other people often make you angry or depressed? Do you avoid other people? When you compare yourself to others, do you feel pretty good about yourself? Do you have trouble asking for help? Are you always trying to outdo someone? Do you make decisions by first thinking about what some other person would do and then doing that or doing the opposite? If none of those hit you, what about this? Do you shy away from sharing your faith in Jesus because of what other people think of you? Uh, author Ed Welch says, if someone has no fear of man, you should check for a pulse. Like, it's just part of the human condition. Like, we all tend to, in some moments, put others above God. Um, the rest of that verse in Proverbs says, the fear, it says, the fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. In another translation, the fear of human opinion disables. Trusting in God protects you from that. Um, I think one of the great things about the four G's and understanding sin as believing a lie about God, failing to worship, it makes the way out more clear. So the four G's are four truths about God that counteract the lie that we're, the lies that we're so prone to believing. Um, you know, Martin Luther nailed the um, you know, 95 theses to the church door. The first one um, said that Jesus willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And we call repentance and faith the true spiritual disciplines. Um, for instance, we use this example often. I don't need to use self-discipline 
to make a habit of reading the Bible. When I don't read it regularly, I need to use self-discipline to repent of the fact that I think I don't need God. Right? Like, that's what's underneath, that might be what's underneath that uh, issue. Um, The fact that I'm believing a lie that I don't think I need God. I can do this without Him. And in that moment, we get to use self-discipline to put faith in the truth about who God really is and who we are and to redirect our worship to him instead of ourselves in that case. Um, so when, when you realize you're overly concerned about what someone else thinks, try this. Imagine that person standing next to Isaiah's vision of God, you know, with the toe as big as this room. You know, if you imagine your boss or your spouse or that random person down the street or your neighbor or whoever it is in that moment standing next to that Isaiah's vision of God seated on a throne, high and lifted up, exalted, seraphim spinning, you know, flying around. Um, Like, who who seems more significant in that moment? or imagine that balance scale with one that person on one side and the full weighty glory of God on the other, which is unmoved by the nations. Um, so let your remembrance of God's glory help move your heart to worship him rather than somebody else. So this morning I've... I've and I've decided to focus on painting a picture of God's glory rather than focus on its implications. Um, and, and, you know, for the fear of man. And, and, and I hope that you leave with a more vivid picture of who God is that you can call to mind later. Today, tomorrow, this week, that helps you and deal with fear of man. Um, And whenever you realize that in your perspective, people are big and God is small, like let that vivid image of who God is in his kavod, like help you kind of snap out of that. Um, Just like all the four G's and all these truths, deep truths about God, uh, they're most vividly seen in Jesus. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, His doxa, His kavod, glory as of the one Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The, the metaphor that's kind of lost in the translation is that dwelt among us implies He pitched His tent among us. Um, he tabernacled among us. The kavod, the glory that showed up on Mount Sinai, that led Israel through the wilderness and, and dealt, it dwelt in that special tent called the tabernacle and was later seen in, in the temple. That glory, that scary, you know, all like all jaw-dropping glory dwelt among humans in the person of Jesus. If glory, in a sense, is a summary of all his attributes, um, it 
makes me think of um, S.M. Lockridge's famous poem about Jesus. It's a worshipful declaration of the glory of God in Jesus. And so let's listen to that together for just a couple minutes here. The Bible says my king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah, that's my king. That's my king. That's my king. One of my favorite lines that they left out of that is, He's the superlative of everything good you could choose to call him. Um, one more meditation about glory. Years ago, I was getting ready one morning, brushing my teeth or something, and just thinking, and I realized that there was a connection between a scene in Exodus 33, Moses and God on Mount Sinai, 
and something Paul wrote thousands of years later in 2 Corinthians. It just, it felt like in the moment God opened my eyes to something and I, I like, I had to immediately get out of the bathroom and go write it down. And this is what I wrote. In Exodus 33, Moses asked the Lord, please show me your glory. And, and God replies, I will make my goodness pass before you. Not his power, not his majesty, not the angel armies, not the splendors of creation, not his might, but his goodness. Then he clarifies what his goodness is by saying, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. So to reveal his glory to Moses, God shows him his grace. In his grace, we see his glory more clearly than anywhere else. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. The highest manifestation of God's glory is the bloody, bruised, beard-pulled-out face of Jesus. In the gospel, we see God's glory. It's not majesty like we might expect. It's the majesty of his condescension to become one of us, to become sin for us, and to rise again to adopt us into his family as sons. Notice that God hid his face from Moses. But he's not hidden his face from us. As close a relationship as Moses had with God and how amazing that experience on the mountaintop must have been, God has made known to our hearts much more by showing us his very face. As we go to the table, let's remember that when Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, he was talking about his body. The glory of God dwelled in him. It's, it's as if he was saying, I'm the temple. I'm the holy of holies. I'm the great high priest. I'm the great sacrifice. Because of his death on the cross, because he's paid for our sins, the Bible says the thick veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. What separated us from God's kavod was ripped in two. Now we can go right in and see his face through prayer, through the word, in community, in the bread, in the wine. We see in our hearts the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So go to the table in, in small groups as you're ready and reflect together on his glory.